This is Strange Assembly, episode 318, Hunter the Reckoning. I'm Chris Stevenson, and we're here today to talk about Hunter the Reckoning, the latest release from Renegade Games for the World of Darkness. I still think of it as new, but the fifth edition of Vampire the Masquerade was released four years ago. Now, with the new edition of Hunter the Reckoning, an additional element of the World of Darkness has finally expanded beyond the flagship vampire line. In Hunter, the player characters are a small cell of otherwise normal humans who have learned that the supernatural exists and are determined to destroy or otherwise deal with it. Hunter presents a distinctive approach to the world of darkness, not just because the protagonists are not supernatural, but because it is heavily mission-focused. Hunter eschews the expansive mechanical and setting elements of the typical World of Darkness game in favor of a more straightforward approach. Note, Hunter the Reckoning was one of the last games released during the original World of Darkness run back in the 1990s. This version of Hunter the Reckoning has little, if anything, to do with that one. So I'm not even going to attempt a comparison here. So your basic mechanics. This is a World of Darkness game. The mechanics in Hunter are the same as those in Vampire. And I'm not going to go over them in detail here, but right, this is the, you have a ratings in your attributes and skills from 1 to 5, usually not more than 4. They're usually referred to as dots by players who've been around for a bit, because you literally fill in dots on the character sheet, and it's been that way since the 1990s, so we call them dots. When you attempt an action, you are rolling a number of dice that's usually an attribute plus a skill. So you're rolling these 10-sided dice. Each die that comes up, a 6 or higher is a success. 5 or lower is not a success. You need 1 to 2 for really basic stuff, 3 to 4 for more challenging things, and 5 plus if your storyteller really wants to make it hard for you to succeed. Higher difficulties, it can be critical to roll, well, criticals, because you get 4 successes for each pair of 10s instead of 2. Like in Vampire, there are things like the, the storyteller has the option to give you an automatic win if your dice pool is twice as big as the difficulty, to win at a cost if you're a little bit short, to spend willpower to re-roll a few of your dice to get a better result. Now, in addition, something that Hunter has that Vampire does not is desperation dice. The characters as a group have these dice, and the number of dice increases as the hunters get, well, more desperate when they get hurt if the target of their hunt escapes or harms innocents or, or that sort of thing it's you know storytellers call when it goes up storytellers call when it goes down if they're being particularly successful when a hunter's desperation dice field applies they can add these desperation dice to their action pool increasing the possibility of success right so if if you're in your field you can roll like attribute plus skill plus the desperation dice. But there are two possible negative consequences that can arise from using desperation dice. For each one that you roll on a desperation die, the danger level goes up. A danger level is a global number for the story 
that modifies some aspects of the threat being hunted. For example, a write-up for a threat might say that danger guards appear, or that the skill rating for a monster to track down hunters is danger. So the higher the danger is, the more, you know, dangerous the situation becomes. The other consequence, a possible consequence of using the desperation dice is despair. And this occurs if a character fails the roll despite adding in those extra desperation dice. This results in the character losing access to the desperation dice until they have been redeemed. How a character is redeemed depends on their drive, which is a one-word description of their motivation for being a hunter in the first place, greed or revenge or curiosity or whatever. And that's the basic mechanics. And that's really it because, again, there's, there's not a lot of extra layer of complexity here because they're supernatural, right? There's no list of what are the special rules for how vampires work in this game because you're people. But character creation. As in any game, right, you're going to start with a concept and, and you're going to assemble the same sort of stats as you would in Vampire. You have those nine attributes, three physical, three social, three mental. Your health is derived from your stamina. Your willpower is derived from composure and resolve. And then you have two extra choices once you have attributes and you have skills. Get same skills as in Vampire. You get to choose a creed, and you get to choose a drive. But here's the thing. These are not a selection like a character's clan in Vampire or a character's tribe in Werewolf. They're very mechanically minimalist. In fact, we've already mentioned in just this little review the totality of everything that your creed and your drive do. The five creeds... The only mechanical thing about them is that they define what your desperation dice field is. So if you're the entrepreneurial creed, you can use desperation dice when building things, repairing them, and that sort of thing while you're on the hunt. If you're faithful, you can use desperation dice in any direct conflict with the supernatural. If you're an inquisitive, you can use desperation dice when trying to gather information in various ways. If you're martial, you can use the desperation dice during any physical conflict whether or not it's with the supernatural. And if you're the underground creed, you can use desperation dice when you're being a sneaky get. The term creed is a carryover from the old Hunter the Reckoning, but note that the creeds here are not belief systems or any use of the word creed in a normal sense, right? These are more like methodologies, how it is that you approach the hunt, what aspect of it your character thinks is important, that's the flavor. The mechanic is, when can your character use desperation dice? The drive, like I said, I already mentioned what does the drive do. All that your drive does is define how you regain access to those desperation dice when you're lost in despair. Just like in Vampire and One Imagines the Future 5th Edition World of Darkness games, you're going to add on to that creed and drive and attributes and skills seven points of advantages and a couple points of flaws. Like in Vampire, some of these scale. The more points you spend, the more info your contact can get you. While others are a fixed point spend for a fixed effect. There are fewer 
advantages and disadvantages than there are in Vampire. Some of them just aren't here at all, and some of the ones that are included are less relevant because Hunter does not drop characters into the same sort of ongoing social structure that Vampire does. Like characters in Hunter, they may have their own personal connections and they may have what they build off of these advantages a little bit, but the, right there isn't anything like the Camarilla or the Anarchs sitting out there like these supernaturals you're regularly going to interact with and could take advantages or disadvantages in respect to. I mean, you can choose to have another hunter for a mentor, but that's not the same kind of constant presence of other social interactions like you would have in some of the other games. But your options here include mortal social connections, a better safe house, and good old resources. One thing I'll note is in Vampire you have this very, very disparate value of the three standard mortal folks backgrounds. You had allies, you had contacts, you had retainers. Those have been cleaned up somewhat from V5, although not as much as I would like. Allies are still egregiously bad because you have to double pay for them, once for effectiveness and one for reliability. This is just like a really obvious issue in this one narrow aspect of E5. I don't know why they didn't fix it. Retainers, which can be significantly overpowered in V5, are weaker here because there are changes in how retainers are built. Plus, you can't just have your retainers blood bonded. So you can't just do this thing like you could in V5 where you can make a three-dot retainer who's basically a second player character to have along unless the storyteller comes in and really goes out of their way to shut them out. There's still a bit of weirdness because the three-dot retainer then gets 10 dots of their own advantages, which means you as the storyteller have to sit there and tell the player, no, you cannot spend three dots on retainer to get a retainer and five dots in influence and five dots of resources. You have to buy those things yourself if you really want to use them. It just requires some serious storyteller management to have the advantage of retainer then get advantages of its own. But it's better than it was in V5, so there's that. And there are a few new, not a lot, but a few new entries. For example, I'm amused by the addition of the nutritionist advantages. At the basic level, you can get your health better when you're cooking for yourself. At the higher level, you are good enough to cook for the whole team and give them advantages when they're recovering health because these characters are human. There isn't all that stuff in Vampire where like, you take half damage from gunshot wounds and you can just drink somebody's blood and spend it to heal yourself. If your character gets shot, they could just end up being in the hospital, you know? So the one thing that is most like a power, then, that a hunter gets are called edges. There are edges and there are perks. Edges provide a basic ability which can be enhanced with perks. A character can start with one edge and two perks, or two edges and one perk, but when you're spending experience, edges cost more than twice as much as perks, so I'm guessing that almost everyone is going to start with two edges and then add the perks later. Edges are divided into three categories. Assets, I can go get stuff. Aptitudes, I am good at this thing. And endowments, which is interacting with the supernatural in some ways. The asset edges are arsenal, guns, fleet, vehicles, ordnance, which is explosives, and library, which is information. 
the physical assets might represent supplies that the character already has or can make, or they might represent connections who can supply those sorts of items. The perks here tend to get more copies of the physical object, add special features, or secure one-of-a-kind materials. So let's say you have Arsenal, right? The basic use of Arsenal is going to be I either have a contact who gets me guns or I'm some sort of gunsmith and I make guns so I can make a roll when we're going on our hunt and like, oh, look, now I've got a gun. If I have the right perks, I might have guns for the whole team. I might have guns that have like silencers and laser scopes, or I might have some sort of unique ammunition in the gun that's effective against this particular supernatural, depending on what sort of perks I've taken. The aptitude edges are either improvising gear, like your MacGyver, or there's an, an aptitude called global access, which is hacking. You can be a drone jockey, which gives you a fancy drone, you know, your own uncrewed aircraft system, or you can be a beast whisperer, which makes you a very good animal handler. Perks in here do things like let the hacker erase data instead of just viewing it. It lets you put weaponry on that drone, or you might give your Beast Whisperer access to more types of animals. The third category was those endowment edges. They are very functionally titled. Sense the unnatural, repel the unnatural, thwart the unnatural, and artifact, as in you have an artifact. These are the only potentially supernatural options in the game. But even these don't have to be supernatural. If you take Repel the Unnatural, you might say, okay, my character has faith. Sure, that's what it is. I mean, there's no specific mechanics here for true faith in this game. You can say that my Repel the Unnatural is faith, but you might just say, I have a fancy doodad, some bit of technology that does this trick and repels unnatural things. The generally mundane natures of these powers, I kind of air quote the word powers, is emphasized because the book rolls right from artifacts into the general rules for gear. In some ways, a lot of these powers are substitutes for gear. You don't have to keep a detailed list of exactly what guns you have, what your cars are, or what have you, because you mostly are using your edges to just make it up as you go along. If that's who the player characters are, what are the player characters opposing? So there are two kinds of antagonists here. And with no clans or tribes or conventions or traditions or kith or guilds and, and no overarching social structure, there is not some big upfront world building in Hunter. Instead, what world building you have comes from these antagonist chapters. Of course, the primary antagonists in Hunter are their supernatural quarry. The secondary antagonists are what are referred to as orgs, larger scale organized groups of hunters. These might be law enforcement, corporations, religious groups, or other less defined entities. The player character hunters in their small cells tend to view these groups as compromised and always looking out for some agenda other than the hunt itself. Never mind that this is definitely some hypocrisy here because there's an entire creed of hunters, the entrepreneurs, who are quote-unquote compromised in the exact same way. Their whole shtick is supposed to be that they have some angle on the hunt other than just hunting. The primary antagonists, the supernatural threats, is probably the best chapter of the book. 
These are not basic entries like vampire or werewolf or ghost. Instead, each of them is a specific named antagonist, complete with backstory, stats, objectives, and advice how to use the antagonists in a chronicle. Basically, each one is its own story, ready to be plucked up and dropped in. I think this is really valuable to a storyteller because Hunter is so driven by these monster of the month things, or however long it is it takes your group to deal with a threat, which is why I think that probably the most important part of each of these write-ups might not be just the what is this threat, but how do you use this threat? So how, how many of these are presented? There are two to four threats each in the categories of vampires, werewolves, sorcerers and their creations, ghosts, and fair folk and stranger things. Note that these categories are used loosely. Don't go looking for them to match up with what some other World of Darkness splat book is going to be. For example, not everything in the vampire section even really resembles what would traditionally be considered a vampire, much less be the sort of vampire you could create for a game of Vampire the Masquerade. And in furtherance of this, the monsters use generic sounding powers so they can be attached to a variety of threats. A vampire written up here might be referred to as having command or charm or resilience. And those vaguely mimic what dominate does or what presence does or the way that vampires can shrug off gunshot wounds. But it then lets the designers take those same powers, that command and that charm, to represent other threats who have other sorts of mental influence and are also tough to kill. There are kind of two downsides to the chapter, as much as it's my favorite. One is that a good number of these threats that are listed are location-specific, which means that now the storyteller has to modify them at least a little bit to use them in your games. It, usually it's not a lot, but at least a little. And I say this because I do expect a lot of Hunter games to start with these threats, for the storyteller to look in this book and pick out a threat and just go for that. And I would like it to require as little modification as possible from that storyteller. The second thing is, for the same reason, I do wish there were just more threats presented, and a few that were a bit more generic. This book is relatively short for a World of Darkness core book. It comes in at under 300 pages. I know the designer has commented on wanting to get it down to 250. I wish they had actually had a bit more page count to had a bit more of a, a threat presentation and a discussion of how to use threats and how to assemble these chronicles. Not that there isn't any of that, but I, I wish there was more. I mean, and it might be nice to have, as interesting as these threats are, to have some threats that are a bit more generic. Like, okay, sure, it's interesting to have the vampire who likes fire, or vampires and werewolves who might also be allies against other supernaturals. But it would be nice to have some more of these write-ups and information on kind of like a more generic version. Not just a generic stat block, but write-ups like these, but for more, I don't know, quote-unquote typical threats. Anyhow, the secondary antagonists, the orgs, are the closest thing to a setting guide in Hunter because this is the one place that really talks about the world as a whole, right? All of those supernatural threats, it's not what are vampires like as a whole. It's not trying to present what is the Camarilla like from a hunter perspective. It's, oh, here are some specific vampires. But the org section is presenting something about larger scale organizations. Most, but not all of these orgs will be familiar 
if you've read Second Inquisition for E5 or things in older vampire books. The orgs are broken up into academic categories depending on what their motivations are. So you've got academic groups like the Arcanum, you've got governmental organizations like the FBI or the U.S. military, uh, you've got corporate entities like Orpheus and Monster X, and then you've got a variety of religious groups like the Society of St. Leopold, a group called the Nails of Christ and the Order of the Rose. Again, just like with the monsters, there's a very, very handy section for each of these suggesting how you might use them in the game. And I think that's actually even more important here because I think it is a lot less intuitive about how to work these secondary antagonists into the game than it is to just like, here's the primary threat. And again, there are these like secondary antagonists because there's a, a very holier-than-thou vibe from the hunters towards the orgs. This idea that they, like, they're compromised, that they tend to just use the hunters, and sometimes that's justified. Some of the orgs definitely do have other motivations. And sometimes it's, it's really not, right? The, the org is actually kind of just pursuing the same sort of thing the hunters are. The big thing, though, is that the orgs are always bigger and better organized and better resourced than the player characters are going to be. Well, one thing I do want to identify here that I kind of have a problem with, and it's a problem you can deal with by just deleting them or by just pretending they aren't a pseudo-mechanic, is that there's this reappearance of chronicle tenets and touchstones. These are elements of character creation. They're present in V5. They're present in Hunter. I just skipped over them above because they don't actually do anything. Right? In V5, they're very important mechanical things because they function as part of the game's humanity system. Right? Violating chronicle tenets makes the character take stains, which might result in them losing humanity. These touchstones are the ways that the vampire holds on to the humanity. They get convictions with the touchstones that help justify what they're doing. It helps mitigate stains. Losing the touchstones can cause loss of humanity. It's got all of this stuff. But there isn't anything like that in Hunter, right? It, it says you must identify touchstones or you can identify touchstones, but they're just people you know. And they're presented in a more formalized way that is to me at odds with their mechanical irrelevance. This is even more so with the Chronicle Tenets. There's text that's lifted from V5 about how Tenets are important because they carry a cost, and there's this tension and blah, 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 except that there is no cost and there is no tension in Hunter. There's no tension between convictions and chronicle tenets. There is no cost to violating chronicle tenets. My vexation with these is kind of amplified because they then put chronicle tenets and touchstones in the appendix on advice for considerate play, right? This is your safety tools section. And they identify them here as quote unquote consequence systems. There are no consequences. There is no system. It seems particularly problematic to present chronicle tenets as a safety tool or as a way to define what is or isn't acceptable conduct for our characters, right? Lines drawn as a safety tool are not supposed to be crossed at all. That's the whole point. But chronicle tenets are typically made to be broken. Again, like these are coming out of Vampire the Masquerade, where it is an expectation that the vampires are going to do things that breach the chronicle tenets that make them lose humanity. That's part of the personal horror of that game. And that is entirely at odds with the notion of using chronicle tenets as a safety tool. I don't know why these are in here, except that they were in V5. These 
as you can probably tell, are frustrating to me. They're, they're just a very square peg in a round hole, and I wish they weren't in the game, especially not in the safety tools section. But that's really my one issue here, and I know it's not a big one, right? It's not something fundamental about the structure of the game, but anyhow. So, how does this all work out in the end? So, Hunter uses the same basic mechanics as Vampire. It's set in the same world as Vampire, but I think that it is otherwise a very different game. The characters in Hunter are human and mostly don't have powers, so there's no extended discussion of how player characters work, what supernatural tricks they can get up to, there's no morality system, there's no hunger dice. Hunters tend to operate in isolated cells. There is no elaborate system of international organizations that the players are members of, which is kind of inherently the case in Vampire. The book here does not spend dozens of pages up front laying out the world for the reader. There's a tiny little intro, and then it just kind of jumps into it. Like I mentioned earlier, the book itself is, is physically stripped down. It comes in at under 300 pages. V5, by contrast, was over 400. And even setting aside those setting kind of things, Hunter is just more straightforward than traditional World of Darkness Fair. It focuses a lot more on the mission and strips away these elaborate power sets and this extensive social networking. I think Hunter probably leans better towards shorter chronicles, maybe even only a single story. You know, maybe the storyteller is going to open the Hunter book, they're going to pick maybe three escalating threats that they like out of what's in the book, and then you're going to string those together, and, and that's going to be it. Because it's mission-focused, there can be kind of a nice defined endpoint to these in a relatively easy way. That doesn't mean that you can't work ongoing social elements from outside the Hunter cell into the Chronicle, but they're just not as integral to the style and setting in Hunter. I mean, most of the interactions that you do have, there. I mean, there's obviously going to be between the player characters while they're on the hunt, but then it's going to be with NPCs that are just kind of these resources you're using in pursuit of your goal, your retainers and your allies and your contacts, that sort of thing. There's still the same advice here on making a relationship map, but without the same sort of social backdrop of something like Vampire, there are many fewer PC, NPC, PC triangles, and it's much more of a hub and spokes diagram. Whether this is good or bad is up to your taste. Players who are looking for something like Vampire or the new edition of Werewolf, whenever that comes out, with all of its tribes and transformation forms and mythology and all that, may be disappointed because that's not here. But as much as I like Vampire and Mage and Changeling and all that, we already have those games. I mean, we may not have them all in V5 yet. I hope we have them in V5 eventually, but we already have those games. So ultimately, I think that it is good that they took Hunter and they took that in what I think is this significantly different direction. It's still in the world of darkness. It's still playing with some of the same themes, but it's just much more stripped down and straightforward and mission focused. And I think it's good that they're introducing a way to do this different style of play within the world of darkness. Again, this is Hunter the Reckoning from Renegade Games. It is out now, so you can certainly go order it from Renegade on their website. Hopefully you can get it in your local game store. You've been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. 
You can find this podcast on our website at www.strangeassembly.com or the Apple Podcast app, Google Play, Amazon, Spotify, whatever podcatching service you prefer. If you don't see Strange Assembly on your favorite podcatching service, please let me know and I'll try to rectify that situation. You can reach me at chris at strangeassembly.com. You can also find us at the usual social media. So we're facebook.com slash strangeassembly at strangeassembly on Twitter or Instagram. I always do like to hear from you, your comments, constructive feedback, that sort of thing. But until then, I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming.